Well, good evening. Good evening and welcome to Calvary Chapel. You can turn in your Bibles to where we left off last week in 1 Peter, in chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And we got about halfway through the uh, total study. It's really a two-parter, starting with living a holy life before God. So we talked a lot about that last time we were together, a week ago, living a holy life before God. And we got into the second portion of this study, this particular study, uh, living a pure life before men. And we looked at what it means to be loving. That was the first thing we realized that in order to live a pure life before men, in addition to living a holy life before God, you have to be loving. It's not optional. It's required. Now, in being loving, we recognize that this was something that happened as we were obeying the truth of God, as we were following God's word, as we were growing closer to God, we realized, well, then the the follow-up to that, just like uh, loving the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, uh, is loving our neighbors as ourselves, being loving and loving those around us. Now, the second of these is what we're going to get into this evening. So again, we're picking up from last week, really part two. In chapter two, verses one through three, we're going to talk about what it means to be pure. I think that word pure just sort of makes people think, well, no one can be pure. You know, I mean, pure to me means like perfect, but that's not what the word means. It's not the concept we're going to address this evening. But before we get into the word, let's open in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, we now come to you after having enjoyed some time in fellowship and worship. We come to you desiring to not only study your word, but that your word would study us, that your spirit would look into our hearts and show us the things that need to change, bring to our attention the things that need addressing and encourage us where we need to be encouraged, correct us where we need to be corrected and do that work by your spirit. As we study your word, may Peter's words, which are the words of the Holy Spirit, touch our hearts in such a way that it causes us to respond in the way that you would have us to respond. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And Jim, if I could ask you just to shut that blower off, the nave blower in the front. Thanks. We don't really need it on. Thank you so much, Jim. Okay, so this evening, we read in verses 1 through 3 in chapter 2. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. It's a really interesting analogy he uses. He he likens a newly born-again Christian to a newly birthed child, an infant. And by doing that, he, he wants us to know, well, when we think of babies, we think of purity. We think of innocence. We, we think of probably human beings at their purest moment. It's probably that moment when they're born. They, they really haven't developed the faculty to sin. They can keep you up at night, but they haven't really gotten to the place where they can actively sin. So when we think of a newborn child, we think of purity. And he uses that thought, that analogy, to encourage us to be pure. And this requires changing our earthly lives. In the, in the same way that we remove our earthly 
garments. You've heard that phrase in the scriptures, put on Jesus Christ, clothe yourselves with Jesus Christ. Well, here the idea, believe it or not, is it's an interesting analogy. He's likening Christians to newly born children, newly birthed children, and they're newly born again, and they desperately needed to change their clothing the way that you need to change infants frequently. They, they soil their diapers, and so you have to continue to change them. Well, he uses that idea, and he says, well, like newly born again children of God, change your clothing, change your garments. That is, change your earthly lives. And so he says, rid yourselves. And that phrase, rid yourselves, really means to change your clothing. Get rid of it. Change your clothing. Rid yourselves of, as it says here, and then it lists all of these different aspects of a sinful character, malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, and slander of every kind. So think about it this way. Your child needs to be changed because the children get, you know, dirty and they need their diapers changed. We as born-again Christians need to change because we've now crossed over from death to life. We're now living lives that are, are different, born again. We, we have new life. And so the wickedness of our former lives needs to be removed. And I think if you think about it as a dirty diaper, it's a pretty accurate analogy. It's not like we can blame anybody else. It's all on us. But we need to change that character. That character needs to be changed. And by the power of the Spirit, we can live a pure life before God and before men. Now, let's talk about some of these words, because you may or may not be familiar with them. Malice should be pretty understandable, but it means to, to have ill will. That is, to wish something bad for someone. If you've ever found yourself saying, oh, I hope that guy falls down a flight of stairs, that's malice. You wish that something bad will happen to that person. And it's a desire to injure someone. So it, it's that idea of someone's walking down the street, and you kind of stick out your foot, hoping to trip them so they'll hurt themselves. That's malice. It's bad intent. And then there's deceit. And of course, we know what that means. It means to manipulate, to be crafty, to lie and, and deceive others. Hypocrisy should be obvious. We see a lot of it in our world today. Hypocrisy is a word that comes from the acting of a stage player. A hypocrite was someone who got on stage, held a mask in front of their face, and pretended to be someone they weren't. And so the idea of a hypocrite or an actor, when used in this context, means it's someone who's not truly being sincere. They're pretending to be someone they're not, a hypocrite. And we see an awful lot of that in our world today. Sadly, a lot of it within the churches. Then there's envy, which is a covetous desire to take, even a willingness to use force or even murder to get what you want. You've ever heard that expression, green with envy? It's interesting what happens to someone when they envy something. If you give your heart over to envy, good things become poison. Relationships are ended because of envy. What happens is your neighbor, who you've always been close to, finally goes out and buys that Camaro that you've always wanted. And you sit there, and you, or he retires, and you wish you could retire 
or, or she just got that new furniture in the, on the patio that you've been looking at but can't afford. And you look out your window now all the time and you're confronted with that car. You're, you're confronted with that, that patio set. You're, you're confronted with the things in that person's life that you want. And rather than being happy for them, all you can think of is, why not me? It's amazing what will happen to your soul if you give yourself over to envy. And then, of course, slander, which is backbiting, saying things about people. You know, you can slander someone with the truth. Just because something is true doesn't mean it's not slander to say it. If you say something that's a lie, certainly that's slander. If you say something that's truthful about someone desiring to embarrass them or discourage them or get them in trouble, that's also slander, even if it's true. Because your intention is to harm them with your words. It's speech that injures another's reputation. So really, if you have something against someone, you should confront them. The Bible is replete with examples. You go to that person, and if you're saying something, listen, I noticed, brother, you know, I've noticed that when I look into your garbage, I see a case full of Heinekens in there. You know, I see, you might have a drinking problem, brother, you know. And then the guy says, oh, no, 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 that's not it. I was cleaning out that garage, and there were bottles back there from the time we bought the house. Oh, maybe, maybe you jumped to a conclusion. Right? That can happen. But if you start going around, you, go, you, know, you go to the same church, and now you go to your pastor. You say, Pastor, I, I'm really concerned. I need to talk to you about something. You know, my neighbor has a drinking problem. Even if it's true, it's slander because... You really shouldn't go to someone else. You should go to the person and confront them and find out whether or not what you think is true. It may not be. <laughs> Maybe his wife who has the drinking problem, you know? You don't know. You don't know the facts. Or you might have had a party and there were a lot of people and they collectively drank a lot of beer. And not that the beer is the issue. It's just that a lot of times people can look at the facts on the ground, jump to a conclusion, and then use that information to harm someone's reputation. We see it all the time. Do not jump to conclusions. Make sure that you have facts. Otherwise, you're guilty of slander. And by the way, slander, envy, hypocrisy, deceit, malice, that's all the kind of stuff that ends up in a diaper. How can I say it? It's all garbage. And, and as sin, it's not really any better than some of the sins we consider really bad sins like even murder or harming someone or adultery or any of those other sins. It's all sin. And so he says, rid yourselves of these things. Take them off. Get them out of your life. How do you do that? The study of God's word. Now this requires not only changing our earthly lives in the same way that we remove our earthly garments, it requires feeding our new spiritual lives in the same way that we feed our earthly appetite. If you are hungry and you eat, you get strength. If you get up and you think, oh man, I'm feeling kind of weak, think I'll skip breakfast, that's a very bad recipe for health. In fact, I know some people I've talked to who will say, I never eat breakfast. And I always say that that is like the most important meal. It really is. I mean, if you, when you wake up, you, you need to put that fuel into your body to, to really give you what you need to get through the day. And if you skip lunch, that's one thing. But breakfast is essential, and to eat protein and things that you really need to get you through the day. Well, you know, the truth of our spiritual lives is that there are certain things, especially when you first come to Christ, that you need to be aware of, that you need to learn, that you need to absorb, that you need to digest. And so, in verses 2 and 3, following this analogy of a newborn child, he says, like newborn babies, 
Crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And he's simply using a nursing child to describe a newly born again believer. And it's a good analogy and it makes sense and the analogy works. See, they were newly born again. They desperately needed to feed as nursing infants. Now, milk is absolutely necessary for the healthy development of newborn infants. Everyone knows this, okay? You can't cut up a steak or even put a steak in a blender and give it to a baby. It's not going to work. And if for some reason they don't get sick and it actually, you know, gets into their system, it, 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 can, it can really do almost irreparable harm to their digestive system. So you have to give them what they need. And what they need and what they crave is milk. They crave milk above everything else. And if the milk is tainted, if there's something in the milk, like if a nursing mother takes something like a, a drug or some type of uh, something that's, that, that will harm the baby or cause the baby to not be able to properly digest the milk, then that baby is going to suffer. They're going to be immediately affected. And if you deprive them of milk, as sadly many children in this world are deprived of, of food and, and, and even children nursing babies deprived of what they need, their development is compromised. It harms them for life. And how does a baby determine the quality of the milk? Well, by tasting it. And that's the analogy that Peter uses. He says it since you have tasted that the Lord is good. So you know that God is good because you've had a taste of who God is. But like a child, don't give up on the milk. You need what you need to grow. In fact, spiritual milk in the scriptures is the basic fundamental principles of God's word. That is the basic basic principles of God's word, the things you absolutely need to know. Not questions about, you know, what year the Antichrist is going to appear or whether or not you can lose your salvation or whether or not the gift of tongues is for today. We're talking about the basic, basic fundamental principles of God's word. In fact, Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he refers to the Corinthians. He says, you should be on to meat, but you still need milk. And the writer of the book of Hebrews talks about that as well when he talks about the basic principles of God's word in Hebrews 5. So in the scriptures, this idea of milk was that which you really need to grow into adulthood. Now, God's word is absolutely necessary for the development of new Christians. So think of the milk as God's word. But, you know, not a T-bone steak. The, the pure, basic principles of God's word. Not necessarily simple, but easy to understand. Essential to absorb. Okay, think about it that way. God's word is absolutely necessary for the development of new Christians. So when new Christians start their walk with Christ and they're not in the word, all kinds of terrible things can happen and often do. In fact, these newly born again Christians should crave God's word above everything else. Everything else, just like a child does. And if the teaching of God's word is tainted, they will be immediately affected in the same way that a child is. And if they're deprived of God's word, their development will be compromised. And sadly, brothers and sisters, I've seen this, just like a child who doesn't receive milk when they're, they're in that developmental stage can be affected for life, a Christian who doesn't receive the basic principles of God's word early on can oftentimes for their entire spiritually, spiritual life be detrimentally affected. It's like they never got the concept that God loves them, God's grace or that they can be forgiven, 
or that they're going to heaven, that they can have that security in Christ, or that Christ died on the cross for their sins and rose again on the third day. Those very basic things, if they're not instilled in them early on, and they're not rooted and grounded in the foundational truths of God's word, they wander around and never really truly understand the truth of God's word because they were deprived at an age or a developmental age when they needed it most. So this is why we're in God's word. And to be pure means exactly this, to get rid of those things in your life that you know you shouldn't have, that shouldn't be a part of your character, and to replace those things with the study of God's word. And for the newly born again Christian, it's the basics. And much of what Peter talks about in this book is the basics. Hey, I got news for you. Most of what the Bible teaches is basics. I mean, there's some stuff that couldn't be considered basics, but most of it is basics. Like, you might not want to start in the book of Zechariah, but the principles of God's word in God's word are pretty straightforward and basic, and we need to be in God's word. Amen? So we talked last week about being loving. This week we've talked about being pure. Let's go on to talk about what it means to be separate. Talked a little bit about this in last week's study. But to be separate, to be holy, to be set apart. And God wants us to live lives that are separate, different, set apart from the rest of the world. You see, if, if they were to take a picture of you uh, with all of your coworkers, there should be some distinction between you and the rest of them, if they're not Christians. If you're looking at family photos and you're looking at a wedding or a party and, you know, your uncles and your aunts are all drunk and everybody's having an interesting time and there you are at the table praying, you know, okay, maybe not that severe, but there should be some difference between you and the others around you, like your life should be a little different than the rest of those around you that don't know Christ. So to be separate is exactly that. But the concept of separateness or holiness being set apart is twofold. And it's beyond our understanding. The first is this. We have to recognize that we have chosen to be God's people. You made a choice. To as many as received them, to those he gave the right to be called the children of God. To, the, to as many as received them, to those that believed on his name, he gave the right to be called the Children of God, the sons of God, the daughters of God. So you made a choice, but it's also true that you're chosen by God. And that becomes confusing because we think, oh, well, how could God choose me if I chose him? Well, God's choices are based on the foreknowledge of him knowing how we'll respond. So God can choose you before you choose him, and you still choose him. Confused? Shouldn't be. God's ways are above our ways, thoughts above our thoughts. So God can choose you from the foundation of the earth, and still you choose him. And that's what we're talking about. That's what it means to be separate, okay? Set apart by God. And we'll see that in verses 4 through 8. It's a little bit of a long scripture. I'm going to read through it. We'll go back over it. In uh, verses 4 through 8 of chapter 2, we read, As you come to him, notice, we come to him, the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are, be- are being built into a spiritual house or a temple to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's from Isaiah 28. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, then he goes on to quote 
from uh, Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or the capstone or the most important stone. And it goes on now in uh, verse 8 to quote from Isaiah 8. A stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. You see, God doesn't choose people that will never choose him. And, And this whole section is really showing that we truly have free will, that we make a choice for God. We have chosen to be God's people. And that means to be separate. That means to be separate. There's no one that would choose God that isn't chosen by God. There's no one that would choose God that hasn't been chosen by God. God will not cast out anyone who comes to him. So you have to understand, it's not like God sees this person and that person hears the word and they respond to the gospel, but they're not chosen. And they come to God and they say, oh, I'd like to be saved. And God says, I'm sorry, you're not chosen. That will never happen because he's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. So understand, if you come to repentance, it only shows that God has already chosen you from the foundation of the earth. When? Before all creation. When did you choose him? Whenever you chose him. You still operated your free will. Now, when we talk about the the stone and the rock and these things in in this scripture, what the writer's doing, what Peter's doing, he's using a common thread, and the common thread is the stone. And it's kind of like a parable, but it's a little bit different. It's not a parable. He's taken a typology, types or symbols from the scriptures, and he's tying them together to present Christ. And he starts by looking at Isaiah uh, 42, verse 1 talks about this, but also Daniel does, Exodus does. Jesus is the living stone that was chosen by God. Notice he says it this way, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. So he starts by introducing Jesus as the stone, the living stone, a living stone because he's alive. That's the first point we need to understand in order to understand all of these other scriptures that he quotes from. He starts by saying the living stone is Christ, the rock is Christ. Daniel uses a rock as a symbol of the coming Messiah in Daniel chapter 2. And Paul uses a rock from the Old Testament as a symbol for Christ as well. So, the Christ that we know, our Messiah, is the rock talked about by Peter, Paul, Daniel, and others. But we, in verse 5, have become living stones as well, and we've become living stones by choosing to come to him. Look what it says in verse 5. So he's the living stone, and we, as it says here in verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Again, this is an analogy, it's a metaphor. He's using something to mean something else, and he's using stones to make his point, if you will. So when we see this, that we have become like living stones, we are now the building blocks of God's construction project. One of the most difficult parts of building even a patio out of stone or a driveway is getting the stones to the location site, right? They're heavy. A number of years ago, I I did a path across our lawn from the driveway to the house. And uh, it was just a narrow path, uh, probably about 18 inches maybe. And um, when I built the path, I had to get all that stone from Home Depot into my truck get it out of the truck, put it there on the lawn, and work with it. And and I realized, you know something? You need a lot of stone 
to do like a 30-foot path of 18 inches each, like each one of those pavers. And what I recognized is a building project requires a lot of stone. Well, this building project, God's building project, building his kingdom, is likened unto the building of a temple. And we're going to talk more about that, but he's using this analogy that he's building a temple. God is building a temple, and we're the stones that build that temple that the temple is constructed with. He's building a spiritual temple through each of us. And we have become the holy place, right? We are the temple of the Spirit. God dwells within us. But also collectively, where two or three are gathered, he's in the midst. So we really are the church. One of the first lessons I learned as a child in Sunday school was that the church is not a building. Because let's face it, as kids, you think of church as a place. You think of it as a building. We go to church. Oh, there's the church. But they made it very clear to us as children, the church is a group of people. It doesn't matter where we meet or if we're in a building. And we are this spiritual temple. And this spiritual temple is being built by God, and it's being built through each of us. In fact, Ephesians 2 uses the same analogy in verses 19 through 22. We've become not only a temple, but a community of priests made holy to God, as the scripture says here. Not only a spiritual house, but to be a holy priesthood. Now, priests represent the people before God in prayer. They do. They represent the people before God. And that is our calling. We're a community of priests, and we've been made holy. The way priests are considered set apart or separate, we need to, as as well, be separate and set apart to God. He's called us to offer ourselves to him in addition to being the temple, in addition to being the priests, he also goes on to say that we are the spiritual sacrifice. Look at that. So he's taking this whole idea. You go to the temple, there's priests there, and they offer sacrifices, and and he sees the church and the people of God in each of those different elements, in the temple, as priests, and even as the sacrifice, because he says offering spiritual sacrifices is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And and it's not that we're offering a lamb or offering a, a bull or a goat. We're offering ourselves, amen? I mean, Romans chapter 12 talks about our spiritual sacrifices, which are our reasonable service or our act of worship. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, we're told. Acceptable to God. And it's the same concept that Paul uses here. Peter says it that way. So not only are we the temple. Not only are we likened to the temple or to the priest, we're actually likened to the sacrifice because we have to offer our lives to him. And we are acceptable. Notice it says acceptable to God because not every sacrifice was acceptable to God. And it's acceptable to God. And how is it acceptable to God? Through Jesus Christ. So if you offer your life as a living sacrifice to God, through the person of Jesus Christ, that sacrifice of your life is acceptable. That is, God accepts you. And he takes that sacrifice and he makes you his own. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. By the way, remember that phrase, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's the only way you can come to God through the person of Jesus Christ. There is no other way to come to God. There is only one way, one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So keep that in mind. Okay. Now, it's important to note, and we've already read this, that each of us makes a choice to believe or not to believe in Jesus Christ. 
You can't make a choice for your children. Your children have to make their own choice. Your parents can't make the choice for you. You have to make your own choice. They have to make their own choice. Each of us have to choose to believe or not to believe in Jesus Christ. And that's why it says, in Scripture it says, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now do you believe this stone is precious? Let's just stop there for a minute. Those that believe in Jesus Christ, the living stone, well, the stone is precious. Jesus is precious to us. I can remember singing songs, Jesus, precious Jesus. You see, the idea that Christ is precious to us because we have faith in him is clear. And what we're told here, Jesus is the precious cornerstone prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 28 through 16. And he quotes that verse when he says, I lay in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone. Now, that, that, that really means the temple, but, but it really is more than that. It's, it's Jesus Christ. And he's using that analogy to point to Jesus. And he says, and the one that trusts in him will never be put to shame. See, if you trust in God, you're chosen by God. You've chosen to be chosen by God. And God has chosen you from the foundation of the earth. Now, he's the rejected cornerstone as well. And the scriptures in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 118, which we studied this last summer, Psalm 118 tells us that he's the rejected cornerstone prophesied by the psalmist. And he quotes then from there when he says, the stone, or I should pick it up in the latter part of verse 7, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble in a rock that makes them fall. Let's stop a moment and realize what he's saying. Christ is the rejected cornerstone. He's the most important stone, and yet he was rejected by his own people. He's the stone of stumbling, prophesied by Isaiah in chapter 8, verse 14. Because God destined Christ to be the rejected cornerstone. He knew that his son would be rejected. And he destined those that reject Christ to be rejected by Christ. Do you understand? People who are rejected by Christ are people that have chosen to reject Christ. If you're not chosen, it's because you chose not to be chosen. Are you with me? If you're chosen, it's because you've responded to God's message of hope and you've chosen to be chosen. But if you've rejected that call, many are called but few are chosen. If you've rejected that call, then don't blame God. You're rejected because you've rejected him. And that's what we learn there in verse 8 where it says they stumble, that they stumble over the stone. Again, he's using this, this analogy. Because they disobey the message, they reject God, they reject Christ, which is also what they were destined for. So in the beginning of the, of the world, the foundation of the earth, they were not chosen by God. They were chosen for destruction. Oh, how awful. No, they were chosen because God knew they wouldn't choose him. So you see how we have free will? We need to make that choice for God. But God knows how we're going to choose, so he can choose us before we decide. Hope that makes sense to you. It's kind of like if you knew who was going to win a horse race, you wouldn't choose the loser. You would choose the winner, right? You wouldn't intentionally choose, but that would be if you knew what was going to happen. So it's, it's kind of the foreknowledge of God that enables him to choose us before we respond or choose him. Doesn't mean we don't choose him. Now, Jesus quoted Psalm 118, 
verses 22 through 23, uh, in the Gospels, three of the Gospels. And he, and he quoted that uh, to warn the Jews of his day. And uh, when we look at uh, Psalm 118, that's the, in verse 7, where it says the, the uh, stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. Uh, those verses were quoted not only by Peter here, but also by Jesus. He shared this with the Jews of his day after telling them the parable of the tenants and made it clear that God would choose the Gentiles after they rejected him as Messiah. They didn't like that very much. Peter also quoted Psalm 118, verse 22, to warn the Jews after Christ's resurrection. We'll see this when we get to Acts chapter 4, verse 11. He shared this with those Jews after healing the crippled beggar. And he made it clear that Jesus was their rejected Messiah. He was the stone that the builders rejected. Now, this idea, and I talked about this when we studied Psalm 118, and I guess actually it wasn't the summer, it was probably into the fall, but when we studied Psalm 118, I mentioned this, bless you, uh, we, uh, I mentioned that there was this legend, and I'll go over it briefly. It's the story of the temple cornerstone, and it's what all of these scriptures sort of reference, what Jesus mentions, what Peter mentions, and Paul also mentions, this idea that when they were building the temple, they were cutting the stones out of earshot from the holy place, from the, from the temple mount. And they would carve the stones or cut the stones very carefully like a puzzle. And they were sort of prefabbed, except that they were cut by the stone cutters. And they were shipped up to the temple mount where they were assembled on the temple mount. And according to legend, the story goes, it's not biblical, but it's referred to in the Bible, uh, that they sent a stone up to the builders, and the builders looked at it, and though the stones were numbered, they, they couldn't figure out where this particular stone fit into their building project. And so they looked at it, they couldn't figure it out, and they put it aside. And the idea is they, they sort of cast it aside, they rejected it as, oh, maybe the stone cutters made a mistake, maybe they sent us the wrong stone, maybe it was another temple somewhere, you know. But anyway, so they put it aside, and after a while, you know, the grass grew on it, just kind of the weeds around it, and they really just rejected it and ignored it. And then when they came to the point where they needed to put the chief cornerstone or capstone, they said, well, where is it? We, we don't have it. And so they sent word down to the stone cutters. And they said, we sent that to you months ago. What do you mean? The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's what they're referring to when they say that. And Jesus is that cornerstone that the Jews rejected, only to find out all along he was and is the chief cornerstone, the living stone, the stone of stumbling, the stone that was rejected, but is the chief cornerstone. So that's what we're dancing around here in these quotes and these uh, references, and so I wanted to mention that. Paul even quoted Isaiah chapter 8, uh, 14, and Isaiah 28, 16 to warn the Jews of his day. So this was a common uh, thread through the scriptures when he spoke, uh, when he wrote in Romans chapter 9, he made it clear that Jesus was a stumbling block for the Jews. They stumbled over the concept of a Messiah that would suffer and die. And they rejected him in the same way that they had rejected God in the past, the same way the builders rejected the cornerstone. So that's what we're talking about here. That's what's being mentioned here. But the fact that Jesus can be rejected makes it clear that he can also be received. Some people don't like the word accepted because it's, you know, not a word that everyone likes, but you can certainly say received and believed on his name. So you make a choice. We make a choice to be God's people. But it's also true, as we've already said, 
that we're chosen to be God's people. And as we continue on in verses 9 through 10, these are the verses that make it clear that God chose you. Oh, yes, you chose God, but God chose you first. God chose you before the foundation of the world. In fact, this is what we learn in verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, there was definitely a time when you were not saved. But there was never a time where you weren't chosen. Let that sink in. Let that seep into your brain. There was definitely a time where you were not saved, but there was never a time where you were not chosen because God chose you from the foundation of the earth. So you might have said, well, if I, you know, what if I died in my 20s before I came to Christ or in my teens before I came to Christ and I never received Christ? Well, God would have known that was going to happen and he knew it wasn't going to happen. So he chose you knowing you would live into your 30s and give your life to Christ. See, I just want you to see things properly because there's whole denominations and theological constructs built on whether or not man chooses to come to God or God chooses man to come to God. And the truth is, yes and yes. Both are right and yet they can't agree. So that is interesting to me, but let's move on here for just a minute. Yes, we are chosen to be God's people. And it's an exclusive message. It's also an inclusive message, but let's talk about how it's an exclusive message. It's an exclusive message to God's people. We are elected. We've talked about that word before. We are elected and picked out to be members of God's family. As it says here, we are a chosen people. That means we have been elected by God, chosen by God. And it goes on to say that we're a royal priesthood. That means we are a regal and kingly line of priests that serve in God's temple. That's how God sees us. We're a royal priesthood. A regal and kingly priest before God. That's how God sees us. We're also a group of foreigners. We're a group of foreigners that have now been made holy. That's what it means when he says, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. A holy nation, a nation that's that, that's sort of chosen out of, of the rest of the world, a people belonging to God. When we, when we see that description, we understand we're a group of foreigners. We have now been made holy or separate, if you will. We are God's valued possession in that we now belong to him. Our lives are not our own. We've been bought at a price, Paul tells us. So you belong to God. So you've been purchased by his blood. And that's why he can say, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why? Why? What's our purpose? You know, a number of years ago, there was a good book, The Purpose Driven Life. And it answered the question as to what's our purpose. A lot of people didn't like that book, and some people loved it. And, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, it told the truth. Our purpose is to serve God, to love God, to have a relationship with God. We have a purpose. And here's our purpose. Notice that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. To praise God, to worship God. 
That's our purpose. If you know catechisms, you know that the catechisms talk about what is our chief purpose. You know, we are designed by God to praise God for all eternity. Now, we've been called to proclaim and celebrate the truth of God's nature. And we've been called out of spiritual ignorance into spiritual truth. And that's why it says, out of darkness into his wonderful light. You didn't know before, but now you do. You were called out of that darkness and into wonderful, into, as it says here, his wonderful life. It's an exclusive message for God's people or to God's people, but it's also an inclusive message to God's people. By that I mean that there was a time where Gentiles weren't considered God's people, but now they are. Gentiles who were once excluded from God's people, the Jews, can now be included. Gentiles were once excluded from God's mercy, the sacrificial law. They they weren't a part of the law. But now we have been called into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. We talked a little bit about this. I believe it was on Sunday. The idea that even Gentiles can be chosen by God was a really heavy concept for the Jews of the first century. But it was still true. Took them a while to get their brains wrapped around that message of acceptance. But as we learn here in verse 10, notice, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. It's fair to say once you didn't even have a purpose, but now you do have a purpose. You're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, that is, you didn't, you know, you were only abiding in God's wrath, but now you've received mercy. God's mercy through who? Through whom? Through the person of Jesus Christ. That's the message of what it means to be separate and what Peter wants us to understand. Okay, wrapping this up, we now get to the last section, just two verses. Not only are we called to be loving, be pure, be separate, we're also called to be good. What does it mean to be good? To be good. Well, only God is truly good, but what it means to be good is chiefly summed up in verses 11 through 12. Dear friends, Peter writes, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That is when Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. See, there's a purpose in living our lives in a way that can be described as good. Not perfect. Good. It requires living our lives, again, differently than the world around us. Do not love the world or anything in the world, John tells us. Those are not the things we want to be loving or be interested in. We're supposed to live differently. See, they were foreigners, aliens, if you will, without citizenship in any earthly kingdom. They didn't belong here. Do you feel like you don't belong here? Because I increasingly feel like that. I look at the way other people live. I, I look at what's on television. I, I look at what's happening in the news and in our nation, and I increasingly feel like I just don't fit in. Remember, I think it was, might have been Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things not like the rest. You know, I feel like, you know, you look at the world and then just, we're just different. We don't fit in. It's okay. You're not supposed to. As it says here, it says it pretty clearly. It says, as aliens and strangers in the world, you abstain from sinful desires. They celebrate sinful desires. Pass legislation to endorse it. Try to teach children in the government schools that it's okay, those sinful desires. What do we do? We abstain from those things. We, we turn our back on those things. We're at war with those things. 
the scripture says here, Peter tells us. So they were foreigners without citizenship in any earthly kingdom, kind of like gypsies. We just kind of wandering through this world, don't really belong here. And notice also they were pilgrims, strangers, not just aliens, but strangers. We've talked about that word in, this, in the scriptures before. Strangers in the world, it means pilgrims. And, and the idea of a pilgrim is you're living side by side with the natives, but you don't belong here. The pilgrims came to the new world to get away from the old world. They, they literally, not figuratively, literally chose to do what we're talking about doing figuratively. They left the world they knew to enter a new world so that they could live for God. And now New England's probably one of the most liberal places on the planet. Sadly. Well, they were to deny themselves the sinful earthly pleasures. So much of being good is denying your own desires. So much of being good, it isn't what you do, it's what you don't allow yourself to do. So let's say you have a problem with anger. By not saying it, by not acting on it, you're good. Oh, but pastor, you don't know what I was thinking. Exactly, I don't know what you were thinking, and that's good. It's when you let everyone know exactly what you're thinking, and you say, i got to give you a piece of my mind, and I have to say it. it. That's when you're not being good. Listen, so much of being good is simply denying your own sinful desires, just not doing what you know you shouldn't do. That's being good. So can we do that? Yes, we can do that through the power of the Spirit. Uh, Because they were at war with the world and its earthly promises. They were at war with the world. They didn't see the world as a comfortable place. They saw it as a battlefield. Notice the war, it it says, which war against your soul. Those sinful desires war against your soul. You feel like you're in a battle, right? Right now it's constant every day, every day, every day. You're like going out on the battlefield and getting shot at, right? Exactly. Because the sinful desires of the world and the world war against your very soul, who you are. And if you don't feel that, I have to question, are you in uniform? Are you a soldier for Christ? Have you, have you suited up? Do you realize you're in a war? Because you are. You know, some people, it's interesting, back in the uh, well, 30s and 40s, for a long time in our nation, they were sort of in denial about the Third Reich and the, the Nazis and the Axis powers, and they thought they could just sort of like, oh, it'll be okay, and then Pearl Harbor took place. They had to figure out they were already in a war in order to fight the war. Don't wait. You're in a war. Know it now. Amen. Now, verse 12 says, live such good lives. Such good lives among the pagans. Pagans just means people who don't believe. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's all about reaching the world. And the pagans are the world, the unbelievers. It requires living our lives differently in in the world, not than the world around us, because being good requires living our lives differently than the world around us. But by leaving the world, like the pilgrims, and just sort of abandoning Europe, you're no longer living your life in the world. You're in the new world, but you're not in the world anymore. It requires living our lives differently in the world around us, and there's an impact to that, Jesus talked about in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. They were to live exemplary lives among the earthly natives. That's our mission. That's why we're still here. 
People say, oh, I want the Lord to rapture us. Yes, I do too. But we're still here and we have a purpose until that takes place. Now, what's interesting to me is they were to influence their enemies through good works. To influence their enemies through good works. And we can do that. You know, that at the time that Peter wrote, some of the pagans who were not Christians wrongly accused them of incest and sexual orgies because they misunderstood what it meant when they said, we love one another. Or when they said, this is my brother and my sister. And so they, they, they just listened to enough to come to the conclusion, oh, these people, these people are, are, are weird. These people are, are guilty of incest and sexual orgies. They're weird, and it wasn't true. And then they misunderstood communion. When they heard people say, we, we receive the body and the blood of Christ, they thought they were cannibals. Because they only just listened to the words. They didn't understand the concepts. So he's saying, look, you can influence them. Notice he said it this way in verse 12. Though they accuse you of doing wrong. That was the wrong that they were accusing them of doing at that time. But even today, though we're accused of doing wrong, let them see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let them be changed and affected by your good works. They were to reach their enemies for Christ in anticipation of his coming judgment. And that, brothers and sisters, is why we're still here. We're called to be loving. We're called to be pure. We're called to be separate. We're called to be good. But we're called to live a pure life before men. So may we do that knowing that until he returns, we have an opportunity to reach those people that they as well might come to know Christ, proving that God has chosen them as well. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this message tonight. Thank you for our time. Lord, we we have such a precious time in your word and we're encouraged in and in worship, and in fellowship. And now we ask that you just continue to bless the fellowship time. Help us to invest in one another's lives and encourage one another. And all the more as we see the day approaching, the day that you return for your church. And may we influence enough people around us that it's not just us standing there when you return, but many, many souls that we find out were chosen because they heard the gospel and chose to receive it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.